0: Hello and welcome to dial for Flanger, which is a chat show, as you can tell by the uh, very intuitive title. Uh, Today I'm talking to a person who, uh, basically when you were a kid, you dreamed of all the things you wanted to be, um, (laughs) but you probably didn't do those things. That's because uh, Karina Becko did them all for you, so uh, yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) Karina, can we talk about um, your amazing career and life and things like that?
1: I would love to talk about that.
0: Yeah, so now... Where did you start? Uh, what was the first job you ever had?
1: First job I ever had in comics or in, in life?
0: <laughs> in life. We'll get to comics. <laughs> okay.
1: First job in life, I worked for a jewelry um, like factory, hand-stringing, uh, beaded jewelry to put myself through community college. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. And what were you studying at community college? Was, uh, what were you seeking to get out of that?
1: At the time, I was hoping to go into an anthropology degree because I thought that I couldn't do hard science. And then later, uh, I figured out, oh, I can do a little bit harder science, maybe not super hard. Like, I know physicists out there will be going, yeah, right, hard science. But um, <laughs> I did eventually end up with a science degree.
0: It took oh, a long right. time, then. Okay. And what sort of career path did you imagine for yourself when you were starting out? What were you hoping to be?
1: you know, I don't think I had a really good, clear picture. I knew I wanted to work with animals and wanted to do something science-related, but, yeah, I was like, oh, I probably can't do that. And I knew I wanted to write, and how do you fit all those things together? And when I was a little, little girl, I really wanted to go into paleontology, but I thought, how the heck do you do that? turns out you can do it, but it takes some doing, so...
0: (laughs) So what was the first job you thought, oh, wow, I've really um, landed where I want now?
1: Oh, the first one was I got a job at the Los Angeles Zoo in the research division where we were looking at how the animals there specifically, I mostly worked with chimps, um, how they interpreted their enclosures. So usually, you know, zoo design, you look at how do the humans like this and you don't pay as much attention to Oh, this is how it used to be. Now it's changed. We were trying to look at it from the point of view of the chimpanzees or the orangutans or whatever animal we were studying, and seeing if they were having a good time and enjoyed where they were living. And oh uh, yeah, that was a great job. I really enjoyed that, and I felt like I was really contributing too.
0: When you're working at a zoo, do you have to stay in your area, or do you do you spend all all the time wandering around everything, all the you know looking at the new exhibits and new animals <laughs> and? <laughs>
1: i was I was lucky with uh yeah, with research, um we often like different keepers would ask us to uh oh, why is this babarusa not acting like they should and do a short- term study so I got to work with a lot of different animals, but keepers usually just get on one well what they call it is a string, so related animals that they can all um either are close together or diets are similar so that they don't have so much work' Cause it's a hard job to be a zookeeper.
0: Everyone who's a zookeeper, I imagine is they think that's their dream job because it's what they always wanted to do is you know what's what's the downside of those sorts of jobs?
1: It's funny, a lot of people think that um, it sounds glamorous. like a lot of a lot of dream jobs sound glamorous and then you do them, and you gotta really love them to do them, you know, because the downside is so much cleaning up poop. <laughs> <laughs> so much and just cleaning up everything and just, um, you know, sometimes you're working with animals that you hope they like you, but they don't have to like you. You have to like them, but yeah. they don't have to like you.
0: <laughs> Golly. Um, how long did you do that for, and and what did you come away from that job with?
1: I did that for about five years. I worked my way up. I was A lot of jobs like that are on grants, so they kind of have a lifespan, because at a certain point, if the grant doesn't get renewed, you just don't have – they can't pay you anymore. Yeah. So, but during that job, I was able to um, go to school and get my zoology degree as I was there. So that was really good. So by the time the grant ran out, I was um, about four months away from graduating. So I was able to just concentrate on my senior thesis and come out of that with with a uh, degree, which was really nice.
0: And what was your thesis? What, what were you, Did you... You must have tied that into the work you were doing directly. I
1: did. I'm very interested in habitat conservation and how zoos can promote that and how, uh, you know, working with animals in the wild, you have ambassador animals in zoos that then um, the animals in the wild, they basically stand in for that and can make people care about the animals in the wild. So my senior thesis was about taper conservation and why it's important and how animals, the tapers in the zoos, for instance, can help um, the tapers in the wild. And because a lot of people don't even know what a taper is. So
0: that's the one with the long nose, isn't
1: it? Yes. Yes. A lot of people mistake them for anteaters, but they are more closely related to horses.
0: Oh, wow. And yeah, they're smaller. And yeah, I'm trying to remember the times I've seen them at Toronto in Sydney.
1: Yeah. They're, they're kind of a weird little, well, they're not little. Some of them get very big, but, um, yeah, they, they sort of look like a tank and they just kind of bumble through the underbrush and create pathways for other animals and eat seeds and carry them long distances and um, basically promote the health of the rainforest. Like You really need tapers, but yet people don't don't think of them. So I like <laughs> wow. underdog animals a lot. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and were they, uh, you know, a really pleasant animal to, to hang with?
1: I really think so. I was very lucky. Um, the LA Zoo is one of the few zoos that has mountain tapers, and mountain tapers are incredibly endangered. There's like only a couple thousand in the wild. But I did get to go in with the mountain tapers several times, and they actually will do a thing where if you rub them the right way, they will just lay down kind of like a cat and be like, oh, pet me some more. So I found very <laughs>
0: That's so cool. I mean, we have uh, wombats which sort of do the same thing as though they just make paths and, you know, any fence in their way they just go through unless it's, you know, the wires buried under under the ground, so, yeah. I
1: love wombats. I I guess I like the tank-like animals that just don't care about borders.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and... The area I'm in, there's millions of them everywhere. So, yeah, but uh, really? I, I love echidnas. That's my favorite animal. And every time I see one on the side of the road as I'm driving, I go, wow, yay.
1: <laughs> I would love to. I would love to visit Australia because I would love to see that for real. Yeah. There's nothing like an animal in the wild. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So what happened after the Los Angeles Zoo? So you're just about to finish your uh, degree?
1: Yeah, it was... Um, A funny thing, I actually ended up with two different jobs that were related. I worked in a wildlife hospital where I was a wildlife vet tech. It's the California Wildlife Center. And we did um, we would rescue marine mammals off the beach in Malibu. But also we would treat little songbirds and raptors and owls and sometimes bobcats and coyotes. And so basically I ran Well, helped run. The hospital and did stuff the vets wouldn't do, like feed baby animals and keep the volunteers going and that kind of thing. But I also worked at the Playboy Mansion as a zookeeper for a while because there is a, or there was, a small private zoo there when Mr. Hefner was still alive.
0: And what animals did uh, uh, Mr. Hefner own?
1: It was interesting. Uh, a very motley collection. There were a lot of parrots and cockatoos and um, monkeys, and uh, we had kinkajous. And a lot of um, toucans and things like that, like hornbills, because a lot of what would happen, especially in L.A., is people have illegal animals like, you know, like maybe a drug dealer thinks it's cool to have. They have monkeys that they keep in their garage. But when they get busted, where does that animal go? They can't all go to the L.A. Zoo.
0: so So they go to the playboy mansion
1: some of them went to the playboy mansion we ended up getting quite a few rescue animals that way we also a lot of people like celebrity type people will get an animal thinking it's super cool like hey it's great to have a parrot until you get a parrot and you realize this is a terrible pet (laughs) (laughs) so yeah chuck woolery's cockatoo was there and uh yeah several several parrots from famous folks that they were just like, yeah, this is not an animal. It's you know, it's chewing up my expensive furniture. It's you know.
0: <laughs> right. So, how many um zoological staff were on at the Playboy Mansion?
1: Um, we would have at least two or three people working a day, and so gosh, I guess I guess there were about five or six people in our department.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Plus our. Men, so.
0: Yeah. So, what was the vibe like? I mean, who were people wandering through all the time? And.
1: Yeah, actually, it was funny because you know it was it was. Quite elderly at this point. Although I was there for the, um, when the girls next door, I don't know if anybody remembers that show, but if you happen to, that was filming at
0: the Oh, uh, yeah. My wife remembers that one.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bunch. I was actually in a couple of episodes and uh, in the background. And so there would be people like that. Sometimes there would be film shoots. Uh, we would have to work parties because you don't want anybody getting really drunk and rowdy. You want somebody to be there. To say, no, no, don't stick yeah. hands in the monkey exhibit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, but most of the time it was very mellow because, you know, during the day it would just be whatever um, women were saying there would go out and lay around the pool. And sometimes Mr. Hefner would come out and play backgammon or something with some of his friends. And it was just a very, um, I don't know, a very chill place to work a lot of the time.
0: <laughs> wow. All right. So, when did comics come into the picture?
1: You know, uh, along the way, um, my my then partner was very much an artist. I mean, he still is an artist. We just don't work together anymore. But yep. he, um, yeah, he uh, was a wonderful, amazing artist. So we'd always gone to conventions and stuff, and he worked in comics. So um, we worked on a book together called Heathen Town, and. Gosh, the art in there is amazing. So I wrote, I had this horror story I wanted to tell about Florida, where I'm from, and we worked together on that, and I thought nothing would come of it, but it ended up being picked up by Image Shadowline. And then from there, I started getting jobs, and then the two of us got jobs together, because he's also an absolutely wonderful writer. So we wrote a lot of things together as well.
0: Uh-huh. So Planet of the Apes, were you able to you know, inform that with zoological stuff when you wrote that?
1: I was so excited to write that. It was, um, yeah, because when I worked at the zoo, as you may imagine, because I worked with chimpanzees and orangutans at the LA Zoo, everybody that worked in the research division loved Planet of the Apes so much. And we'd have viewing parties. So I was very well versed. But I also knew what actual apes were like. So when that job came up, it was just like, well, this is perfect. I can bring all of my... Actual knowledge, but then of course, flipping it is the fun part, right? So yeah, we had a lot of fun with that book. I'm really proud of what we did with that. And I should mention Gabriel Hardman. I don't mean to not be like not be saying his name. No, he's um amazing artist and writer. That, uh, we did some great work.
0: Uh huh. What happened next after that with your career? So, paleontology came into it at some point.
1: Yeah. Uh. Yeah. It's funny. You know how comics are. It's real hard to make a living just doing comics. (laughs) It's it's, it's rather stressful because you get to a point for a while I was only doing comics and it it gets to a point where you're maybe writing four or five books a month and nothing's getting all of your attention because it's just a treadmill. And I started thinking I could have a day job again that I liked because I liked all of my day jobs. And I started thinking, what do I really, really want to do? And so I thought, well, paleontology was my first love. Maybe I could get an in at the museum. Total, complete nepotism. A friend I had worked with (laughs) at at the Playboy Mansion, who was a good friend of mine, had become a zookeeper at the LA Zoo. And her volunteer was the volunteer coordinator at the Natural History Museum. So she put in a good word for me and I started volunteering at the Natural History Museum with um, the paleontology department. It's called the Dinosaur Institute there. And I just kind of hung around enough that they had to kind of hire me eventually. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very fortunate. I've been there now uh, three years as an employee, uh, about a year and a half full time, but still writing comics almost full time, too. So. It was uh it was a busy COVID year.
0: <laughs> right. Another comic uh, that I really enjoyed by you and um, Gabe was Invisible Republic. And that seemed to have a lot of um, sort of, I guess, deep thinking about what planets would be like and what the, you know, creatures on these planets would be like, you know, the, the native uh, wildlife and things like that. So was that a, a big part of developing that series?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm actually so proud of that series. I, I really like what we did with that. And, um, You know, he's an amazing storyteller and brought a lot of um, deep insight into politics and uh, the way action should work and the storytelling. And I felt like what I could bring to it was exactly that, because I'm also really interested in earth science and uh, space science and, of course, how ecosystems work. So as we're going into that, I thought a lot and wrote a lot about how. Something like that would work from the ground up and what it would mean if humans came to a completely pristine, not some place where they had evolved along with stuff and then became humanity as we know it now with the tech revolution or whatever, but actually came to an unspoiled place and what that would do and what the impact could be on that. So I, I feel like I mean, I'm sure we got a lot of details wrong and it's not perfect, but we really tried to think through those those aspects and make it those things as realistic as possible
0: well i'm never going to know if the details were <laughs>
1: right, right.
0: <laughs> some sort of Good thing about there. and it's speculative
1: it's, it's not historical <laughs> fiction no one knows
0: <laughs> yeah paleontology what is that what's the day-to-day job in paleontology
1: i have to say it is the best job in the whole world my job is I'm not a researcher or anything like that. I just have my undergrad degree, but I get to work with researchers. I get to all day long. I work with really smart people from all over. We often have visiting um, people from Portugal or China or wherever in the collections. And what I do is I'm technically a fossil preparator. So I work in the field. We'll we'll dig up dinosaur bones out in the field, put them in big plaster jackets, bring them back to the lab. And pretty much my whole job is stabilizing the fossils like, you know, they can get broken. They're very old, so sometimes they need some love and cleaning off all of the dirt and the rock and the, you know, roots that have grown through them. But you never want to make them whole, if that makes sense. You want them to be you don't want to lie with the fossil. You want to repair them in such a way that it's very obvious where the repairs are, because then the researchers can use. The information and not be like I don't want to say tricked but not make mistakes based on if you've tried to make it look like you think it's supposed to look
0: so okay so not not waste time discerning something about it when ex- you know, there's a bit of yeah. speculation there
1: exactly it's funny I think of it a lot like writing in a way because what I'm my whole job is helping the fossil to tell its story so I am cleaning it off I'm putting it back together in such a way that it is as close to what it would have looked like in the ground. But now you can pick it up, measure it, CT scan it, whatever you need to do, and allow it to tell you about the animal that it used to be and the environment it used to live in and uh, all those really interesting, mysterious things that otherwise we wouldn't know anything about.
0: Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so, paleontologists, do they ever get together and watch Jurassic Park? Or Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, The last time we were at this uh, quarry in Utah that all these uh, big diplodocus come out of. Those are the big long neck dinosaurs. There's something like 13 of those in this single quarry. And some some promotion was going on right then when it was like, oh, take video of people um, reenacting Jurassic Park. And so we're in the middle of nowhere with absolutely no internet access and constantly filming each other reenacting Jurassic Park scenes on our phones, even though (laughs) there was no way we could upload this to the the contest or anything. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, people love to, in paleontology, love to be like, it's all wrong, and it's this and it's that, and that's not really how paleontology is done. But secretly, everyone's seen it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is there a view that that was a really good thing for the industry or had no impact? or? I think, uh, um,
1: yeah, I, I think that it was a good thing for the industry. And honestly, from my point of view, I mean, a lot of people think different things because but from my point of view, Dr. Ellie Sattler is an amazing role model for for women and young women coming up. I mean, she was just a complete badass, but also kind and gentle and giving and you know, she was completely as much as of a field hand as everybody else and was able to do brave things. And I just, I love her. I love that character so much.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. My son's uh, room is just filled with Jurassic Park stuff. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Science fiction. How did, how did um, science fiction – were you always into science fiction as a kid or was it something you got into later? Or You know, I
1: kind of was. I, I was thinking about this the other day. Somebody actually asked me about this um, in response to The Expanse. And, yeah, I when I was much younger, like a little kid, I really liked um, fantasy, like, you know, Lord of the Rings or whatever. But when I was in high school – um, my boyfriend at the time, very smart guy, read a lot of literature and, you know, very important literature, but he also read a ton of science fiction. And it changed how I thought about it because all of a sudden I was like, Oh, this is what smart people wear. <laughs> you know, they, they, they read this stuff too. So I started reading it and I was like, Oh, I get it. So yeah, I started reading a ton in, um, in high school, really, like I hadn't as a, as a younger kid, but I don't know why, because I was, Loved science fiction movies.
0: So. so what were your favorite science fiction movies?
1: Oh, when I was, you know what? When I was a kid, I actually
0: loved Black Hole. <laughs> I just watched that the other day with my, really? I, I loved it as a kid and I, my wife had never seen oh it. My gosh. She's just sitting there through, through the whole thing going, you like this, you really like this? <laughs> yeah, that I loved must,
1: it. <laughs> that must be a thing to watch as an adult because I cannot look at that movie critically. I just see it as I saw it. And I have no idea. Like, if you watch that as an adult, it must be not a good experience.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I sit there and I go, "Oh, look at the set design and the matte paintings and That's the, you know, awesome. just the visuals and, and space is so, you know, blue and bright and fascinating looking."
1: <laughs> and uh, you know, there's stuff in there that you know it made me cry. It was it was pathos. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I can't fault it. <laughs>
0: cryptic ending and everything. No, I love that Yes,
1: that actually, bold choice on their part, I think.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Disney today wouldn't do that, would they? Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, So, and you are writing something to do with The Expense, I believe. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so, yeah, I've been writing – gosh, I've been so busy. But, yeah, so I did um, uh, write a book for Smithsonian kids called – 1,000 super space facts <laughs> that will be out next fall. And at the same time, I was writing a miniseries for The Expanse. So, yeah, lots of space.
0: <laughs> right. And with these 1,000 facts, I mean, is there any facts that you came up with that you thought, oh, no one's really talked about this? So I love this one.
1: You know, one of my favorite facts, I, I think probably everybody knows this, but the, uh, you know, Mars has two moons, and the moons are named... The translation of them is fear and dread, and they look exactly like potatoes, and I just find that so funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's phobos, and is that, is that right?
1: Uh, Demos, De- De- yeah.
0: Demos, yes. A Wonder Woman villain. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just I think it's amazing that they look like potatoes. I don't know, that's not a very good fact, but it's very funny to me.
0: <laughs> no, that's cool. Oh I mean, yeah, yeah. Everything's everything natural can be very weird sometimes.
1: Yeah, it's just very. Like, oh, okay, Mars has some potatoes. That's great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mars has potatoes is a great (laughs) name for a story. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that ties into The Martian as well. Uh. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, is there anything coming up you'd love to tell us about or you'd like us to look out for? Yeah. So who publishes the um, Expanse comic book? Oh,
1: it's Boom. I should have mentioned that. And I should mention the artist is... Alejandro Argon who is amazing and I loved working with him I hope to work with him again sometime in the future he's just a he's a great guy and uh just a brilliant artist
0: okay and that that's that was a mini series Mm -hmm. that's completed it's completed
1: yeah it's actually out the trade is out now so oh yeah so it should be available wherever you buy fine books (laughs) or comics (laughs) comics. (laughs) yes well hopefully you can buy all of these things at your local comic book shop so
0: Yeah. And how's the uh, pandemic been for you?
1: You know, it was a weird thing um, because they sent us home from the museum. So it was, I didn't love it, but I got to keep working and I kept writing and I kept working on small little tiny fossils that I could prepare at home, which are some of my favorite things are Triassic animals. So I worked on some of those. So aside from really, really missing my friends, it wasn't horrible, but I didn't love it. And I know a lot of people had a way worse one. So I almost feel bad even saying I don't, I didn't love it because comparatively, you know, I was yeah. lucky. <laughs>
0: so. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been able to work from home continuously, so that without any disruption. So that's, that's very terrific. lucky for me. That's
1: terrific. Cause yeah. that's, I know so many people have their lives just in turmoil, but yeah, I've been, I've been incredibly lucky. And then because at the museum, my job means that I work with a lot of dust and some of the dust that comes off of some of the dinosaur bones can have a lot of like radon. So it's almost like it's radioactive. So I'm used to wearing an N95, eight hours a day uh-huh. at work. Right. So when they call this back to the museum, uh, there's huge dust filtration systems and everything in our lab. So I felt very safe because I'm already in an N95. There's huge amounts of filtration, air suction, and um, they had a staggered. Of course, it's a place that's very science oriented. So we were following the science exactly. So I've been so lucky I could go back to work and not, you know, there's no, no worries there. So.
0: Yeah, and I imagine you're not working with many anti-vaxxers or anything. No,
1: we actually just did a poll and 99% of the employees there have been vaccinated.
0: Wow, that's awesome. And apparently
1: the last 1% is, there's just a couple of people that for medical, actual medical reasons can't be. So.
0: Right, yes. I was talking to my sister, she's a high school um, coordinator and she's having great problems because she's got two teachers who don't want to mm-hmm. be vaccinated. Uh, one course God told them so, and one course the internet told them so. Oh, so.
1: <laughs> I don't understand it. I always get my flu shot and everything because I hate to have sick time. Like, even if it doesn't give me long COVID or downtime and I don't pass it to somebody else and feel guilty, I still don't want to be sick. Like, I don't understand yeah. that. I hate to be too sick to work. So,
0: <laughs> and I, I've been, I mean, I live on a farm, so I don't see people unless we really go out and look for them. So, oh, so lucky <laughs> you. Nice. You're,
1: you're, Automatically protected.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The isolation is fantastic for that. Right. Um, so anything else that you'd want to tell us about before we wrap this?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, well, a couple years – it's actually a couple years back. Everything is screwed up time-wise because of the pandemic. <laughs> but it uh, feels like it just got finished. But I also have a book out, a second book from the Smithsonian that already came out that's called uh, Smithsonian Dig It Dinosaurs. And that's also for young readers. I co-wrote it with Brenda Scott Royce and it's still available. Well, in the States, it was available in Target and Costco and all over. So I imagine other places will also have it, but it comes with a little dinosaur that you can dig out of a piece of matrix. And it's, I'm pretty, (laughs) pretty happy with that. So I just want to put that out there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite pictures of my son when he was a little kid was um, he got a, you know, sort of a lump of um, clay stuff that you could, Chip away way out to get, bring out a plastic dinosaur and there's a photo of him. And he's got his tongue right out and to the side <laughs> with his hammer and these goggles. <laughs> That's
1: fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I just I thought it was so neat that they, they packaged this with one of those that I just, like I, I every interview, I'm like, yeah, go get that because it, it's fun.
0: <laughs> uh, are there any comics you want to recommend by other people that you're enjoying at the moment?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, what have I read lately? I just read... Um, Stray Dogs by Tony Fleeks, which was... Oh, that was so cool. I loved that. And I also just read um, Helm Grey Castle by Henry Brass. So that also I really enjoyed, kind of fantasy Mesoamerican stuff. And I think both of those, the trades just came out because I think I picked them both up at Rose City Comic Convention, which was the first time I'd been back to a convention in a really long time.
0: (laughs) There's a good one called Compass coming out from... um image at the moment which is sort of historical about a, a scholar um uh islamic scholar oh and, yes um,
1: i've been meaning yeah, to I pick think, that up so so that's a good one to. Uh, i will i will definitely check that out on your recommendation
0: yeah i talked to the guys who wrote it on the first episode of this show so.
1: really oh my gosh okay i will definitely head over to to my local comic book shop and, and pick that up
0: well, thank you very much for this chat. It's just been incredible. And, um, I, yeah, you really are living a very interesting life and very exciting. I life.
1: have been so lucky in my life, I have to say. I've been extremely fortunate. And this has been an absolutely cool. delightful chat. So thank you so much for having me on.
0: So where can people find you if they want to follow you and uh, see what you're up to? Yeah,
1: Twitter is probably the best one. Uh, everything is just at Becko at whatever Karina Becco Twitter, Karina Becko on Facebook, Instagram. They're all just my name.
0: All right. Thank you for that.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And I really appreciate you thinking of me and taking the time. Next time you see a wombat, just know that I am feeling so much envy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, when we went to L.A. as a family, we were, I think it was, is it the Science Discovery Center where the space shuttle is? Yes.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: We were there, and the, the highlight of the day was seeing squirrels. We were all like, oh, the squirrels, look at that. Oh, <laughs> that, you <don't> have- oh. <laughs> that's so funny. We just felt so, it was just so embarrassing because we were so excited by the squirrels and the kids, you know, they were like, oh, did you see the space shuttle? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's amazing.